this is a very exciting episode of Sokka's Is That So, the show where we talk about venture capital, we talk about founders, and everything tech and VC. I have a very special guest today. We have Nihal, one of the founding partners of ENIAC Ventures. Welcome to the show, Nihal. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, why don't we dive straight into it? Um, we see each other on Fridays doing pitch and run, so we'll keep some things to the side. But I mean, how did you get started at ENIAC? Uh, kind of what le led you up to starting ENIAC as a firm in the first place? Yeah, no, thanks for asking. And um, it was great to meet you uh, at Pitch and Run, actually. So uh, uh, we started ENIAC in 2009. Um, prior to that, actually, I met my co-founders as fresh. We all met freshman and sophomore at engineering school at UPenn in 1995 and 96. So I've known these I've known these turkeys for uh, 27 years. Um which is crazy. Uh, when we graduated in uh, 99, we all um, essentially founded and operated our own startups, uh, 12 venture-backed startups between the four of us independently. As startups do, a uh, majority of those failed. Um, so I say we have a lot of battle scars, scar tissue, muscle memory, um, especially building businesses through the crash of 01, the financial crisis of 08, I think it taught us a lot, also gave us a lot of, um, you know, confidence uh, and vision in terms of strategy in today's market, which we can talk about later. Um, off the successes that we created, um, started angel investing, and then we decided to try to do it together. Um, in college, we had uh, email addresses that had ENIAC in the name. Uh, ENIAC is actually the world's first autonomous computer. And it was built in the 1940s at UPenn. Um, and uh, just as a homage to that computer, um, you know, they gave us email addresses. Uh, mine was nahal at eniac.upenn.edu. And so as we were thinking about starting a fund, um, it's kind of a cool namesake. You know, we were building in mobile software at the time, and we knew we would be investing along the future of computing. And we thought it'd be kind of a cool throwback. Um, so called it ENIAC. And then of course, like a few years later, we went to the Dean with our tail between our legs, kind of asking him uh, if we could use it after we had been using it. And of course he kind of messed with us and said, absolutely not, but he was joking. And and um, and so anyway, here we are uh, and we're investing out of our fifth fund now in 2023. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I mean, talking about battle scars, I was an angel as well for a few years. Um, and you don't realize how many losses there are before you get that win. Uh, then you think about portfolio construction and all that, but it kind of gets your pattern matching recognition and all those types of things in place. Uh, I'd love to hear about how you kind of thought through your decision-making process prior to starting ENIAC as an angel, and then kind of the first one or two funds versus now. Yeah, you know, angel investing is very different than fund investing um, for a variety of reasons. You know, I think um, two of my best angel investments were companies, uh, you've heard of, uh, Uber and AdMob. Um, and both of those were at least a hundred X, um, returns, but, you know, they were a lot easier to access because, um, of the size check that angels are writing. Um, and it's all about access, right? It's all about kind of 
being at the right time at the right place as an angel. And um, to your point, the loss rate is extraordinarily high um, as proportional to the failure rate in general of startups, but I think probably as an angel uh, even more so. Um, and so kind of transitioning that to a fund um, was definitely a process. Um, I think the diff key differences were, were obviously as a firm, there's not one decision maker. It's the firm's decision, right? To put money behind a company. And so you're often benefiting from a variety of input um, into your calculus for the investment. Obviously the check size is a lot bigger. Um, and then the portfolio construction is another piece, which is it's not just all about the initial check. It's about maintaining your ownership and your pro rata in your best companies or even being able to buy up over time. And so I think that was definitely a different muscle that we had to learn and flex. Fortunately, our first fund was tiny. It was a million bucks, um, which is smaller than our average check size now um, of like 40 companies in the fund. And so like initial check size. And so um, the first fund was essentially like an angel fund, like those check sizes were like 25, 50K checks. Um, and so the access was almost just as easy as an, as an angel investment, but we had to treat it, um, you know, like a fund in the sense of half of the capital, half of the million dollars, half a million dollars was kept for follow-up, you know? And we knew that, the, the by the way, the goal here was obviously to return the fund multiple times over, which uh, ended up happening, but um, to really create a, a track record and a working history where we could use this as a blueprint to scale. And we ended up doing that with fund two, that was a little bit bigger, 10 times as big, $12 million. Uh, and then fund three, 55, fund four, 100, fund five, 125. And so obviously we've grown from 1 million to 125, but like we've kept the fund sizes small, relatively speaking, to a lot of our peers because we want to focus still on pre-product market fit, seed, pre-seed. And we also want to focus on uh, DPI. You know, it's much better to 10 times a fund um, and easier to 10 times a $125, $150 million fund than a $200 or $250 million fund. So um, anyway, I think I answered your question and then probably rambled on some more after that. No, that's great. I was actually speaking to one of the managing partners at Venrock not that long ago, um, and we're talking about the level of competition in this space. And that comes to mind because you're mentioning it's all about access, right? You got into Uber and that kind of, you know, did its thing for you. Um, but now with the competition being so much more fierce with more VCs around, maybe more angels, mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts on the competitiveness of the space? Do you think the space is growing overall? In other words, the pie is getting bigger or it's just more competitive in a smaller piece? Like, how do you think about it? Yeah, so both. The pie is definitely growing. I think folks um, definitely see how technology has been advancing the entire world. And I think in terms of the amount of venture capital raised, right, last year alone, there's a world record. Um, but, um, you know, these funds are increasingly competitive. Um, we often talk about at ENIAC, why do we have a unique right to win a deal? And 
it's kind of in two places. One is um, if we have a thematic approach to a sector, we've thought about it for a while, maybe we publish content about it, maybe we've gone on somebody's podcast about it, you know, but we've thought about it for months, quarters, maybe years. And we've met a lot of companies in the space and we have a prepared mind. Um, then we have a right to win in that space, right? And so that's happened time and time again. For example, my partner Hadley has um, his own, uh, from his own founder operator days, background in NLU, natural language understanding. And so we were thinking about, you know, Gen AI way before it was cool, um, much like mobile when we first started. And, um, you know, he basically had this thematic interest in it. And we ended up backing this company called Attention, um, where we just announced uh, its funding. And, um, you know, this company is very, very exciting, where it actually helps salespeople understand uh, contextually a sales call, can then follow up afterwards. So it uses NLU and GPT-3. Uh, follow up afterwards and update Salesforce afterwards. So it's kind of this Iron Man suit for a salesperson, right? Which is a very interesting use case for AI in general, not necessarily displacing humans, but augmenting us with kind of these Iron Man suit, whatever the use case is. So that's kind of anyway, one category of right to win, which is this thematic approach. The other category is we've been lucky now to be you know, building companies for a couple of decades and investing for 12 years. And so this amazing network of folks that we've created, um, maybe folks we backed before, often folks we haven't backed before, but have maintained and grown relationships with. Um, a lot of folks that we've become friends with uh, over time who are like incredible founders and operators. And so, you know, I say life is long. I mean, if you think about time, as a um as an additional access where uh you have a 10-year horizon right a lot of like younger folks don't necessarily have this perspective i didn't when i was first starting out but if you think about this from that perspective where you might have missed this like decacorn that's okay um get to build a relationship with the founder and the team and when they start their next company you know you could have a right to win that, right? Because you built that relationship. And so a lot of the companies we backed in the past couple of years have been from Epic founders that have taken companies public, that have sold companies for a few hundred million. Um, and we've just maintained that relationship so that when they're starting their next company, we're their first call. And, um, and that's where we have the right to win. So we call that the opportunistic bucket uh, or the thematic bucket. And so we're kind of half and half. As a seed fund, you have to be opportunistic because it's really all about the team yeah absolutely couldn't agree more in fact you, you mentioned something that that struck with me because you know i'm trying to grow my network as well and find better access to deal flow but that means managing and scaling relationships on the deal flow side as well as the lp side right you got to 
maintain a CRM, be relevant to those touch points and things of that nature. How have you managed to maintain your relationships to your point? Life is long, especially as you're scaling, because you probably knew 50, 100 people when you started out. And now you probably have thousands of people in your network. How have you maintained those relationships as you scale such that they're relevant to you as a business, but then, you know, creating value for your partners as well? Yeah, I think about this every day. Um, I think there's a couple of tactical things. Um, but philosophically, I believe that everybody you meet, you meet for a reason. Um, and that's just like on a spiritual level um, that people are in your life for a reason. And it's up to you to to figure out why um, if you want to. And But if you have that mentality, you kind of... Um, collect their information and stay and figure out a way to stay in touch. Right. And when the time is right, like that potential will be unlocked. Um, that's how I think about it kind of spiritually. And when you have that perspective, then tactically you do a bunch of different things um, to keep those relationships warm and ready um, for when they need to be activated. Um, so one catch all is, and I've been doing this since 1999. Um, I have a, if you meet me and you give me your email, you will be mandatorily forced without opt-in into a newsletter. <laughs> and I've been doing this since the beginning, literally since the beginning of email, um, since like 97, probably. Um, and so now we have this like extremely large email database and it gets added to every day. And if you're an unsuspecting victim, you may get our ENIAC newsletter. So Saka, you're, you're going to get one of these uh, if you haven't already. Um, and we, you know, for whatever, you know, use case right now, it's the, an ENIAC kind of quarterly newsletter that goes out. And so that's a really easy, low friction way to stay in contact with everybody you've come across, somebody you met at a happy hour, a networking event, a pitch and run, a LP event, a customer event, um, et cetera. It's kind of like a nice catch-all. And what's interesting there is that, um, uh, you know, actually the unsubscription rate is very low, open rate is very high. I think most people are excited about hearing from somebody that they're, you know, that you create an impression on. And um, over time, you know, the relationship is kind of growing without you having to necessarily do anything, right? So that's kind of one really easy checkbox. Another thing that I do, I, I have this kind of notepad that sits in Dropbox. We got to figure out how to implement it better in CRM systems, but it works great now. Um, where it's like a bunch of lists of people, and they're all um, categorized with um, kind of keywords and um, very easy to find across any device anywhere. And these are just lists of. You know, right now I can pull up a list of like my favorite pre-seed investors, my favorite fintech investors, my favorite seed investors, my favorite CTOs, um, you know, my favorite healthcare experts. And so whenever we're doing work on a company or I meet a founder, I'm able to revert pretty quickly um, to uh, to see how we can help, you know. Um, this morning, some uh, founder emailed me, Hey, what, are, what are your favorite pre-seed, uh, firms who might be interested in ed tech? And I just ran a search in this document. My, um, partners call this the matrix and, uh, pulled 
pulled out a list, sent it to him, and he was blown away. And he's like, I'd love these three intros, fire them off, boom. So um, I organized my my networking lists is the second takeaway. So email lists. And then the third thing that's really important to me is everybody that I do take a meeting with, um, I really we really try to help. Um, I remember as a founder, I remember the seven times uh, very vividly the VC would pass on the business I was starting, but they would introduce me to somebody that um, literally changed the game for me at that time. And that inspired me to do, try to do the same. And so when I meet a founder, you know, we're lucky as, as having all the scar tissue um, of sometimes being able to put ourselves in their shoes and making an intro to somebody that they might even not, not, not know they need, you know, it could be this epic customer, their future co-founder, maybe a company that might, We'll buy them in five years. Um, and like any meeting that I do take, I try to be very deliberate with a game-changing introduction. Um, and the reality is, is, you know, we don't get to invest in 90% plus of founders we meet for one reason or another on, on either side. But if they can come away from this experience um, with like some incredible value that they've derived from meeting us, then we've done our job. And we do that to kind of just serve, you know, to serve the the ecosystem and the community. But the side effects of it are enormous because these folks then tell their friends or their next company or their friend's next company, whatever it is, helps build brand and reputation, uh, which is why the majority of our deal flow is inbound, you know, through those simple actions. But um so anyway, that was a lot, but those are kind of three things on how, why relationships mean so much. It's this email kind of catch all. Uh, you'll be on our spam list if you meet me. The um, organizing folks into lists constantly, which we call the network. Um, and then um, really trying to help everybody that we do spend time with, whether or not we invest. Yeah. I think you hit the nail right on the head. There are some of those pivotal moments, those people you meet, and it changes the trajectory of your life and the way things operate for you. Um, you once told a story, I think it was at uh, Primetime VC, or I think you won that day. You're the champion. And uh, you spoke about your LP. That was meeting. a good day. Oh, it was a great day, man. Um, and I think you, you said you went to an LP meeting and you locked yourselves out of the car and you weren't able to get upstairs. So people don't know this about you, but you're an epic storyteller. So we've got to get you back for part two. But on that note, do you have any story or was there a pivotal introduction that happened in your life that you were like, man, that changed the course of ENIAC or my, my you know, the way my venture firm is running or ran? Yeah, there's so many of these moments. Um I had to give a shout out to you know one of our mentors, who's Alan Petrikov, who's one of the oldest VCs in the game. Uh, arguably started VC, he started Apex, and then he started Graycroft. He just ran the marathon, um, and he's like ninety or eighty nine or ninety one wow. or something crazy. Um, and I remember pitching him a business in two thousand eight at a company called uh, Knight that became Buzzed. And it was a location-based city guide in the same space as Foursquare at that time and Looped and Whirl and Gowalla. It was kind of post-iPhone app store and all these apps were racing for um, to this LBS, location-based services space. And we're pitching him a business. And I remember um, he's just 
gets on one of those old speaker phones and starts dialing a number and um you know me and my co-founders like dude what's going on like he's totally like distracted and he definitely doesn't like what we're pitching so this kind of sucks anyway speaker phone's on and on the other side of the phone uh a guy picks up he's like russell speaking and alan petrikoff was like hey russell like you know there's a couple kids here pitching this location-based service city guy i thought they, they might you know want to meet you and um you could help them out, maybe connect them to some artists um, who could help promote and be ambassadors on the platform. And lo and behold, it was Russell Simmons, and we scored a meeting with him later that day. We you know he's one of the forefront kind of inventors um, of hip hop, you know, having just founded Def Jam and signed yeah. so many pivotal hip hop artists in that era. Um, and so, anyway, I, I, I was really impressed by his generosity his selflessness Alan's um for two kids he just met and just being able to open up his network and make a phone call um right then and there that was pivotal for us at the time and so um anyway I, I think that's inspired a lot of how we try to act you know with other founders and like I said they're I can count them on on two hands, like those types of moments that folks have reached in. I call it digging into the crates and and make those intros. It doesn't happen a lot, you know. the The bar in our industry is so low. Like the current bar is that when you pitch an investor, you will be go you will be ghosted by them. <laughs> like if you go in with, for a meeting, Zoom or or IRL, and uh, you 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 probably won't ever hear back. And you'll follow up a bunch of times and, you know, in superhuman, you'll see they read the email. You won't even hear back. So the bar is you're ghosted. Yeah. You do a good job when you just pass. Then founders like, thank you for passing. Like <laughs> I can like cross you off my list and move on with my life. Um, but the golden standard is uh, let us try to help. And that was one of the, you know, that that's how we were inspired to do that. And, kind of how we want to serve. Fantastic. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. We got to get you back for part two. Uh, where can people reach you or just stay in touch with what you're doing apart from your uh, newsletter that's everywhere? Yeah. So if you're not on the newsletter, go to eniac.vc to get added to it. Um, but I'm pretty active on Twitter. So it's just at Nahal, N-I-H-A-L, Meta, M-E-H-T-A. And exactly. uh, Or you can find me on Monday and Fridays at 9 a.m., behind Chelsea Pierce for Pitch and Run. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks, Haka.